Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello and welcome back. In today's special episode recorded live at ClioCon, I spoke with Michigan criminal defense lawyer Mary Chartier. Mary successfully defended clients in numerous federal and state trial courts and on appeal at the Michigan Supreme Court. Mary's practice is not limited to one single area of criminal law, but instead she's developed a reputation as an expert defense attorney no matter how novel the case is. She even takes cases on doggy death row, pro bono, representing dogs who've been ordered to be euthanized. She and her firm recently won Clio's Reasonman Award for its wrongful conviction work. She's a graduate of Western Michigan's Cooley School of Law, Go Broncos, and here's my conversation with Mary. So I was hoping we could start by talking a little bit about your path to becoming a lawyer and doing criminal defense more specifically. So what made you decide to become a lawyer and do what you do? Well, actually, I wanted to open up a restaurant and then coming from a family where college was really important because I come from an immigrant family. Mm -hmm. That was really not the most positive of paths. Totally. And so I agreed to go to college essentially to humor my parents and I was going to study hotel restaurant management. If I liked it, stay in school. If I didn't like it, quit and I'd open up a restaurant, which is what I really thought I would do. And then I loved it. I absolutely loved college. I met my husband at the time, obviously my boyfriend in college. And then I worked for a while. So I managed a nonprofit. I was the director, which was the number three person. So it wasn't the the person in charge. And I really loved that. I loved social justice issues. And ultimately I went to law school and I only was interested in criminal defense. So that was perfect. Oh, wow. So you had a plan going into law school. I did, which I know is a little bit unusual for people, but I, every class I took that was remotely related criminal law, criminal procedure, con law, when it was about the first amendment, I loved it. And so it really solidified what I wanted to do. And then I did pass my other classes like tax and property, but all of that's out of my head. Hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I think is hard for my students, especially when they think about criminal law is they immediately are drawn to sort of pop culture depictions of criminal law. And I guess not to de-romanticize it, but I'd be curious to sort of what do you do every day or what is the life of a criminal lawyer when it's not law and order? Well, it's never like law and order. It never gets solved in 45 minutes. And, you know, law and order doesn't show people on the computer researching or strategizing or practicing in their car to see how something sounds. Sure. When it's not television, which it never is like television, it's wildly fun and entertaining. And to me, it is far better than any movie or television show I've ever seen. Got it. It's a lot of working with clients in various stages of their lives. Some want your advice. Some really don't want your advice. Sometimes you're hoping that people will 
never see you again in terms of in the criminal defense realm. You right. can get them out right. of trouble or minimize their trouble, sure. and then they can go on. We have relationships. My business partner, Takura Yamfukutsa, has been to former clients' weddings. He's been to engagement parties, to birthday parties, to their children's birthday wow. parties. I mean, we try to establish good relationships sure. with people. Although some people do go to prison for lengthy periods of time just because of the choices that they've made. And we still try and stay in touch with them, let them know that people care about them. Wow. And do you feel like when you're doing that kind of work, does it ever get hard to know that there's a person in their life on the line? And if so, like, how do you deal with that reality? It's never hard to know that there's a real person whose life is in your hand. The hardest thing is how you deal with that. I mean, the stress can be sure. overwhelming because when you realize that the choices that you're making as you head toward trial mm -hmm. can really impact whether someone goes home to their family or spends the rest of their life in prison, it really can be overwhelming. And that's why self-care is so important. Sure. And our work culture is really important environment. Mm. We really stress that people, so everyone there is salaried full-time with absolute flex hours mm -hmm. so they can work whether they I mean, not if they have court obviously sure, right court, but court they, no not flexible hours, right no right? flexible hours but if they don't have court it doesn't matter if they're working at noon or midnight mm -hmm. as long as work is getting done and really trying to recognize that people need to have a life outside of the firm and is, do you think that's a new reality for criminal defense lawyers i mean i'm true across the profession but I, I you know i kind of think about criminal defense lawyers as people who are sort of chained to their desks waiting for the client to come in or chained to court dates is it something that technology or or something else is allowing lawyers to have a little more flexibility so i think women actually are changing that culture quite a bit right i mean the traditional law firm culture not just for criminal defense lawyers but everywhere yeah. is you go in at a particular time, you work, you come home at a particular time, you work on the weekend, you go on golf outings so you can network. I think as women become more and more prevalent in mm -hmm. terms of leadership positions, we recognize that that really doesn't work because right. there are kids who need us and spouses who need us and other family members who need us. I think as women become more powerful, the culture is changing and also the younger generations, yeah. that is unacceptable to them, right? Totally. It's absolutely totally. unacceptable, and that's why I love it. Younger generation is really pushing that as well. Yeah, and it's something I talk about a lot on the podcast with people in all sorts of practice areas. And something candidly as a dad of young children that I talk to young to other dads about is we have to be part of that change. We may not be the leaders in it, but we need to be a part of it and help move the whole profession forward. It's not healthy. The old law firm culture model is not healthy. It really isn't for lawyers. You can be extremely effective as a litigator and you can be extremely effective as just a person, whether you have, you know, dogs or cats or right. kids or, or no one at home right. other than a plant. Sure. But people can live a life outside of the law firm and be amazing at it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you mentioned, uh, which made me think about it, is sort of being a good litigator. And one of the things I noticed about your bio is you've worked both in the trial space and in the appellate space. And I'm always curious for people who do that, because so few people do that nowadays. What have you learned sort of from your appellate experience that you've taken to heart in your trial experience or vice versa? What you've learned from your trial experience that you take to heart in your appellate experience? So my first job essentially out of law school was clerking for a Michigan Supreme Court justice. And I absolutely loved it. And that really helped me frame how trials should be conducted when you have an eye toward this might not go the way you want it to go mm -hmm. for your client. 
right? If you lose, I mean, the, you know, kind of the joke is, well, you've won your client the right to an appeal. Right. You've got to make sure that the issues are well identified, well briefed, well preserved, well argued. Sure. So that for the appellate lawyer, they have something to go up on. Mm -hmm. And you really have to have an eye toward that. And what a lot of at least younger lawyers, or I wouldn't even say necessarily younger lawyers, but more inexperienced sure. lawyers, Faces well, they know that the judge is not going to rule for them in the motion, or you know, arguing against that is going to make the prosecutor mad, and they know they're going to lose. So why bother doing it? Why bother trying alienating yeah. when you're trying to preserve that issue? But if you don't win at trial, then you've really done your client a disservice. Your job in that courtroom is not to make friends; it's to make sure you protect your client's rights, and that's whether you win or lose. Huh. So that appellate lawyer has something to argue. If everybody is a professional, they get what you're doing. And that also includes advocating for a change in the law. We've argued issues because we think, well, if the client loses, we want to advocate for a change in the law. We think the law that was the Michigan Supreme Court ruled on right. or the U.S. Supreme Court in the 40s is wrong. Right. And so we'll candidly say we recognize there's precedent, but if things don't go our client's way, we want to make sure there's an issue here. Hmm, that's really interesting because as somebody who teaches sort of law-based reasoning for a living, I'm constantly trying to teach students sort of how to argue to what the law is and what the case law is and what the statute is. But you're absolutely right. There's such, sometimes that's just not on your side and you have to take that opportunity to argue for a change in law. At the same time, these are individual cases that allow for that law to change. Do you ever sort of think about that dynamic of this is a law that's changing and what facts can we either promote or not promote in order to make that law change. Sure, because you're not only arguing about what the law is, but you're also, in my opinion, if you're a really great advocate, arguing about what you want the law to be. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking ahead, you're looking multiple steps ahead for your client. And not all cases lend themselves to that, but a lot of cases do because it's the right set of facts, because you know you have a very sympathetic defendant or because just everything is in your favor, or maybe at least a few things are in your favor. Right. And one of the other things that I saw in your bio is that you've represented criminal defendants in lots of different areas, particularly in sort of newer areas like medical marijuana. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like to argue in an area where the law may not be as well established. Well, one of the most interesting cases that we had was, and it was one of our most unpopular clients, but actually it's one of my most favorite clients, was in the female genital mutilation area. Wow. We handled the first, along with a number of other amazing lawyers, Shannon Smith, Matt Newberg, and just other lawyers, other really great lawyers, the first federal prosecution for female genital mutilation in the nation. It took five years for us to get that case dismissed, and it was ultimately dismissed because of prosecutorial vindictiveness. But during that time, the statute was deemed unconstitutional. We got multiple charges dismissed on the part of the client. And that was, for that, we couldn't call another lawyer and say, well, how did you handle this case? We were the lawyers who were right. handling this case. I mean, it was really a first for everybody, and it was really, really fascinating. And it was the same with medical marijuana. In the state, we had handled what was believed to be the first Section 8 hearing, which is just a facet of Michigan's former medical marijuana law. There was nobody to look to for that. We had to build it from the ground up. Wow. And, you know, one of the other things that I know, uh, we have student listeners all over the country who do come to law school like you thinking they want to be sort of criminal lawyers. They're not sure if they want to be prosecutors or criminal defense lawyers. 
What's your pitch to those folks to do criminal defense? So it's far more fun, I think. It's just like <laughs> far more fun. We really need great prosecutors, and, and we certainly don't want a country where there are no prosecutors. But I think criminal defense work is a lot more fun. Truthfully, you'll make a lot more money, and I think you have a lot more flexibility in your day. You can... I don't have to work on Friday if I don't want to. If I don't have court, I can take Friday off. And mm -hmm. then if I want to work on the weekend, I can, but I don't have to. For most government lawyers, they really are structured in terms of when their day starts and when their day ends. And frequently, they have to work extra as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the whistle blows at five and they get to go home. They right. also are putting the hours in, right. but usually for far less money. I think we just have a lot more laughs. And there's tons of camaraderie in the criminal defense community because we never fight against each other. We're always on the same side fighting against the government, which has resources far in excess of what we do. So there's a really tight network of criminal defense lawyers. And what would you recommend to a student first or second year who's listening to this podcast who says, that sounds great. I'd love to become a criminal defense lawyer. What should they do in the next two or three years, end of law school, early in their career to set themselves up for a great criminal defense career? I would get involved in anything litigation related that the law school has to offer. So most law schools have a moot court class or a moot court team, or they have trial litigation classes and they have trial teams. I would get involved in that. Take as many of those classes as you can get involved in that, but also try and either, if you can work for a litigation firm, do sure. it. If not, do an externship or internship. Try and get as much experience as possible and also work on your research and writing. I know it's not sexy, but <laughs> that's a key part of it. You don't get just to go in and argue a motion. You have to write it first. And a lot of judges will decide it on the paper. I mean, they'll come in and you might have in some counties 30 seconds to make your argument. You don't have all day just because they're so busy. So they already know what they're going to say or, or how they're going to rule. Sure. And they pretty much know what you're going to say. So you might just want to go in and highlight a few things. Right. And and I did not pay you in advance as a legal writing professor. Oh, I didn't know you were to, a legal to, writing professor. <laughs> to promote it. No, I think that's so important. And it's something I tell my students all the time. You know, even when I was clerking um, on a trial court, there were many people who could make really good arguments standing up. The ones who could make the good arguments on paper were fewer and further between, and they did their clients a big service. Right. And it sounds like that's been your experience as well. It has been. And that's, that really is the key to success. In federal court, we do a lot of federal work. A lot of times the judges will dispense with oral argument. They will decide it yep. on the document alone. And so, I mean, you may lose your client's, um, you know, issue just because you're not a good writer or not a good researcher. And that's certainly no good. You're not going to be successful and you're certainly not helping your clients. So just to switch gears a little bit, I mean, the reason that we're here together here in beautiful Nashville um, is your firm just won a very prestigious Clio uh, Reisman Award for legal impact for all of the work you do. I have a whole list here, but I mean, Innocence Project clinic work, pro bono work, exoneration work. Tell me a little bit about your firm's commitment to this sort of, I assume most of it's non-billable work. You bet. We have the most amazing team and I have the best business partner in the world. His name is Takuran Yamfakutsa. He's an amazing litigator. And when we started the firm, we have the same passion for social justice issues. Everybody at the firm does. And so what we do when we take a pro bono case is we all vote on it. And if everyone votes yes, then we take it. And we've never had a split vote because we screen them pretty heavily right. before that vote goes to the team. Because the reality is the hours that they spend on that, they're not billing. And that impacts the bottom line and impacts bonuses at the end of the year and sure. salaries and everything. But we have exonerated three people in one year. And that was, I think, the main push toward winning this award, yeah. which is 
I mean, we worked on one case for six years, right. and then ultimately he was released after spending 26 years in prison for wow. a murder he did not commit, a woman for 18 years, and then a man for nine years, all for murders they did not commit. And then we also do pro bono work for dogs who are on dog death row. We're a big animal-loving law firm. Everyone has their dogs or cats running around in the office. Cool. If you come in, you're usually greeted by Nicole's dog, Magnolia. She's very sweet. She's an excellent greeter. And um, we work to get dogs who are wrongfully classified as dangerous dogs. Wow. And actually, one of the paralegals, Lizzie, came up with, everyone looked at this and thought it was arguing uh, a flaw in the law, how the statute was written. But she actually looked at the underlying facts and saw that three dogs that were accused of killing these goats actually didn't do it. It was a coyote. Wow. It was, I know. And so it was really wild. We had a hearing. There were experts who came in and testified that the bites were actually coyote bites and not how dogs would bite. And the funny thing about it is all these lawyers getting involved, looking at this, thinking, you know, like, oh, we've got to look at the statute. She looked at the photographs for about five seconds and then said, a dog didn't do this. It was a coyote because she had grown up on a farm. Huh. And so she knew what a coyote bite looked like versus a dog bite. I love that. And that, I mean, I think that has a lot of, I mean, that has great messages in terms of like finding the things you're passionate about right. as a lawyer and you get to do that. But also the idea that it's a great reminder that like what judges know, what the lawyers know, like those biases play a huge role. And if like she didn't grow up on a farm, right. how do we even, we're, we're, it's a totally different case. Right, I didn't grow up on a farm. So right. I like, certainly I didn't. didn't know yeah, that. Right. I didn't even know that was a thing like that. A coyote would bite differently than a dog right. and it was. But it's the team approach that has really led to our success. We work just very collaboratively. We have lots of meetings where we discuss strategy. And so I'll have an idea on a case or what path we should take. Then Marissa or Kurt or Kim will say, oh, no, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they have better idea and frequently they do have a better idea. And what would you say to a firm or to a, a young lawyer, for that matter, who wants to do this kind of non-billable pro bono work? but just feels like they can't make time for it because they're already too busy. How do you make it a priority, but also make the legal profession a livable one? There are avenues, for example, I know Marissa does a lot of work. She's one of our younger lawyers. She's been out, you know, the least amount of time. She does a lot of like expungement fairs. She's like the expungement queen, essentially. Someone will come in and they've got a felony from X number of years ago, and then she works with them and she'll help them, you know, get that felony off their record. People can do things for the day or for the afternoon if they want to kind of dip their toe into pro bono work. Working on exonerations is vastly different. And, and for a lot of newer lawyers, it might not be where they are right now if they're alone or if maybe there are only sure. one or two people in the firm because it takes a lot of hours over a lot of years. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a huge, huge, huge investment. So you've got to have the retained work to keep things going. Got it. Well, look, we're getting close to the end of our time, and I always like to end my conversations by asking for a piece of advice, either some piece of advice that you give to more junior lawyers or something you wish you knew earlier in your career. What would you offer to my listeners? I would tell them to make sure that they have fun when they go to work every day. It's not all going to be a walk in the park. It's not all going to be, you know, birds helping them get dressed in the morning and, you know, a Disney movie. But to really try and land at a firm or land at a prosecutor's office or wherever, they just have a great time. And also, don't be afraid to try things and fail and look foolish. If anyone is coming in and saying they've won all their motions or they've won every trial, they're either A, lying, or B, they're just not pushing hard enough, right? If right. They, I mean, right. the reality is you try lots of things and they're not, you're not successful, and that's okay. There should not be this, like, drive toward 
winning all the time and perfectionism. Doesn't mean that you don't push and fight for your client, sure. but don't be afraid to try cases. Absolutely. Well, it, I, I think that's so right and so important and such a good reminder for the future people. Cause I think lawyers can be a little type A sometimes oh, and they want to yeah, win right. everything, but you grow when you lose. Right. Well, look, it's been great talking. Congratulations again to you and your law firm. Thank and, you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in the future. Yay, thanks. All right, be well. Okay, thank you. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.